Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. This is episode number 67. My guest today is biologist, philosopher, and author, Dr. Massimo Pelliucci. I learned about Massimo from his influence in the skeptic and scientific communities, and I used to listen to his podcast with Julia Galef called Rationally Speaking, so I've always been a fan. But recently, I've been on a stoicism kick. Evidently, so is Dr. Pelliucci. He's the author of the books How to Be a Stoic, A Handbook for New Stoics, Live Like a Stoic, and a few months ago, he published the book A Field Guide to a Happy Life, which is also all about how to apply age-old Stoic principles in the 2020s. In today's interview, Massimo Piliucci and I talk about how he learned about Stoicism, how he began learning about it in depth, and why he believes that Stoicism, for him, is just the right framework above all other philosophies of life for living a joyous and satisfying life. He also helped me answer questions I had left over from my discussion about Stoicism with William Irvin, who was great, but the conversation left me unconvinced that Stoicism has all of the answers. Not necessarily pessimistic, just not completely realized or convinced. So I brought up these split hairs today, and Massimo answered them very well. And of course, I'll let you decide that for yourself. So enjoy this interview with Dr. Massimo Piliocci. Massimo, thank you so much for being with me. It's a a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm interested to talk about stoicism, as I mentioned. And of course, you seem to be right for the picking in terms of candidates who might be able to talk about it. And I'd like to get into what got, what led you to practicing stoicism. I don't, it might be the same as so many other academics of philosophy that I've spoken to where you can't avoid stoicism. So you're introduced to it uh, and then it becomes just ingrained in you, but I'd like to get your take. Actually, no, I definitely did not get into it from the academic route, Mm. partly because as you mentioned, you know, I, I studied my career as a biologist and I was a biologist for like close to 25 years. When I switched to philosophy, it was not because of my interest in Stoicism. It was because I was getting more and more interested in sort of conceptual issues in in biology and in science more generally. So those conceptual issues uh, started bordering on philosophy of science. Mm. And I started publishing papers in uh, philosophy of science. And so I said, hey, you know what? I'm in the middle of my career at that time. I was in the middle of my career. So I said, maybe it's going to be a fun thing to do, to go back to school, get a PhD in philosophy, and actually completely switch fields. So that's how I got into philosophy. Stoicism happened a little later. Uh, it turns out that I was in the middle of uh, a, you know, a mild midlife crisis. A few things that happened uh, that I didn't necessarily expect. Uh, you know, I was going through a divorce, which was unexpected. My uh, father died. Uh, that was in the same year. In fact, a few months apart from each other. Got a new job, which meant moving to a different city and uh, getting a new house and you know, new colleagues and everything. Now, any decent psychologist will tell you that one of those events in a given year is fairly stressful. Sure. When you get four or five of those in the same, you know, span of a few months, it's like, well, hold on a second here. What's it's what's a heavy that? cognitive load, yeah. Right. It's a heavy mm-hmm. cognitive load. And so then I turned to what I what at the time was my philosophy of life for help, because that's what philosophies of life are supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. And my philosophy of life was secular humanism. And it was utterly useless. It's just like it did not help 
at all. And the reason for that is not because I disagree with the tenets of secular humanism. I completely agree with, you know, with, with uh, you know, that kind of outlook on life. The problem is that if I keep repeating to myself that uh, you know, I'm in favor of human rights uh, and that uh, we should live in a more just society and we should use reason and science, you know, those are the tenets of secular humanism. Yeah, fine, but I'm getting a divorce. What does that got to do with anything? So you could, it's like you could recite uh, secular humanistic values yeah. to death, right? Right, but they're not going to do anything in terms of, okay, yes, but how am I going to, to deal with the particular situation that I have right now? Yeah. Obviously, I wasn't going to go back to religion. I, I grew up in Italy, in Rome, so I was by default, I was a Catholic, and I left the religion and embraced secular humanism uh, when I was in my teenage years because it didn't make any sense to me. And so it's like, okay, now I'm not going back there. So now what? And then I thought, oh, well, you know, you, you, you've been studying philosophy as a professional. Surely, if there is a place you can look, that's going to be philosophy, right? I, I, and, I, and I systematically started looking at different philosophies of life with the notion that what I needed was some kind of framework that was not only a general view of life like secular humanism is, but actually also practical that, that I could actually carry into day-to-day -day life. Not only when there is a crisis, such as a divorce or your father dying, but also, you know, in regular, regular everyday life. So I started with Buddhism because a lot of my friends said, you know, you should look into Buddhism. Yeah. Said, okay, let's look into Buddhism. It didn't speak to me. Uh, some, you know, the, the Buddhism ethics is actually very interesting and it's, it's well thought out. And as it turns out, it actually has a lot of similarities with, with Stoicism, I discovered later. Um, but, the, but I couldn't get over the, the metaphysics. I mean, no, sorry, karma, reincarnation. No, that's not going to, that, as I said, I just left, I left Christianity early on for similar reasons. So mm. that's, that was out. Besides, the language was alien to me. That's simply for cultural reasons. You know, I didn't grow up in, in that sort of society. So it's like, okay, uh, interesting, but no, thanks. Then it occurred to me that uh, virtual ethics was going to be the area, the general ballpark where, where the answer is going to be. Why? Well, because modern ethics, like things like Kantian style deontology or utilitarianism, those are kind of universal approaches to ethics. You know, you, it's, they, they really work if they work. I actually have doubt that they work. But if they do work, they work at the level of how to structure a society. But in terms of, again, of personal issues, like, no, that's not going to... Not, not tactical. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so virtual ethics, on the other hand, has the advantage that if it's focused in what I think is the right direction, which is on the character of the individual. Right? Virtual ethics don't simply ask themselves, is this action right or wrong? They actually ask more broadly, are you working toward be, becoming a better person? Are you actually improving yourself? Because then if you become a better person, presumably you're going to figure out what is the right thing to do or, 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 or not, right? So I said, okay, virtual ethics it is. Great, let's plunge into it. First stop, obviously, had to be Aristotle. Because, you know, the Nicomachean ethics, that's the classic founding, you know, text of virtual ethics. And I looked at it, lots of interesting things, but it's like, yeah, but hold on a second. Aristotle tells us that uh, in order to, to live a eudaimonic life, a life worth living, uh, you have to practice virtue, you have to, you know, improve yourself. It's great. That's a, that's a, that's a yes. But you also need a number of other things in order to flourish, including, uh, you know, health, uh, a little bit of education, a little bit of wealth, you know, a little bit of money, good looks. I say, okay, hmm. that's, 
that seems like a little too aristocratic for my for my <laughs> taste. It's like that that excludes like two thirds of the world to to say the least. So that that is interesting, but it's not gonna work. You know we don't run paid ads on this podcast, and we never will. Instead, I'm going to give a shout-out throughout the year to some of my favorite local businesses in light of the difficulties they've faced during the coronavirus pandemic and beyond. I hope that some of my Vermont listeners will turn your attention to the businesses that I mentioned and consider taking your business to them. And when my out-of-state and international listeners are finally able to come to Vermont, I know you'll check out these local businesses that I mentioned throughout the year. This month, I'm giving my shout-out to Zen Barn, a restaurant, bar, and music venue all in one. Why Zen Barn? Well, it's in Waterbury, Vermont. It has killer food, extremely fair prices, amazingly kind and community-oriented owners and staff, and consistently amazing music. Actually, I'm a musician, and I've played at Zen Barn several times. Not only do they treat their patrons like gold, they treat their musicians well, too. Their mission is to build our community from soil to soul by using sustainably sourced ingredients and socially conscious business practices, all while supporting and promoting incredible musical artists. Their website is zenbarnvt.com. They're located in Waterbury, Center, Vermont, and you can support them by dining with them, whether it's takeout or dine-in. Again, that's zenbarn.com. I'll be supporting my appetite at Zen Barn's business this weekend, and I hope you'll do the same. Check them out and support them in any way you can. One more time, that's zenbarn.com. That link and links to their social media is in the show notes. Now, back to the show. So, like, uh, Aristotelian virtue ethics starts you at a place of good moral luck. I yeah, think. exactly. There's a lot of moral luck involved. In, in, in the concept of moral luck is very pertinent uh, there, right? It's, and, it, and in fact, and I think to some extent, to be fair to Aristotle, the difference is that, you know, all the ancient schools of philosophy use the word eudaimonia uh, as, you know, the life that it's, Essentially, you, you're looking at that. You want to live that kind of life. Now, right. the problem is that they all cashed it out differently. So when oft, often eudaimonia these days is translated as flourishing, hmm. but that biases things in my in my opinion in favor of Aristotle. Because yes, I would agree with Aristotle that if I if the goal is to flourish, uh, then yes, I do need money, you know, good looks, uh, education, and so on and so forth. Uh, but there are there are broader versions of you know broadest translations of eudaimonia, the life worth living. Now it turns out that a life worth living may not be necessarily a life of flourishing. If you're lucky, you flourish, but that doesn't mean that your life is not worth living if you're not actually flourishing. My right. typical example, my, my obvious example is you know in the modern times, somebody like Nelson Mandela did not flourish. He spent 27 years in prison. That's not flourishing. But I challenge anybody to tell me that Nelson Mandela's life was not worth living, right? So, or Socrates himself, he was ugly as they could come, apparently. So, you know, so much for good looks. And yet, again, you know, I challenge anybody to tell me that Socrates' life was not worth living. He was penniless, you know, or drachmaless, I suppose I should say. So, it, you know, no, 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 from a, from a point of, from an Aristotelian point of view, Aristotle would have said that Socrates is like, no, that's not a good life. And yet, I think it really was. So, standing Aristotle aside, the next and next to the last stop was Epicurus, because other secular humanists actually are into Epicurus for a number of reasons. First of all, because even though he was not an atheist, um, he actually said, you know, you shouldn't worry about the gods because God is over there thinking about himself thinking stuff. He doesn't really care about, 
human beings. There's no, you know, it's useless to pray, you know, that sort of stuff. It's like, forget it. Also, more importantly, you should not be afraid of death because as he famously put it, put it uh, where she is, you are not and vice versa. Uh, and, and in fact, all these stories that you hear about the afterlife, they're all made up by priests and poets who want to take advantage of you and control you. It's like, okay. So you can see why Get on board, popular yeah. with yeah, secular humanity. Also, he was an atomist, right? So he believed that the world is a bunch of atoms in colliding to each other. So it was a materialist in a sense. So that goes fairly well with modern science, et cetera, et cetera. Great. So I looked into Epicurus. I liked all of that, all of what I just mentioned. I also liked the notion that Epicureans are very much into the importance of friendship uh, in life. Uh, the Epicurean goal, and, and they are into, uh, you know, pursuing small pleasures. They, ha they do have the reputation of, of being the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy, but that's actually not true at all. I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, they, they go into after very small local pleasures, you know, that, that so that all of that looks good, except... Then you get to, for the Epicurean, a eudaimonic life is a life of no pain, both physical and especially mental pain. Okay, uh, but that means, says Epicurus, that one of the things you don't want to do is to get involved socially or politically, because social political involvement, as we all know, carries pain. And I said, all right, I'm out <laughs> because I don't think a life worth living, actually, at least for me, is one where there is no social and political involvement. So it's like that was out. So now we got four down, right? You know, Buddhism, Aristotelianism, you know, uh, Epicureanism, Psycho-Humanism, of course. It seems like what they all have in common is that they're, they're uh, the definitions of what makes for a decent life in those philosophies went from grand to a little smaller to a little smaller. Right. You, you haven't honed in on a personal philosophy yet. Right. So there I was. And then at some point I saw this thing ap appear on my Twitter feed of all places. It says um, this message, it says, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. I said, the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Because, of course, at the time, I had the common misconception that the Stoics are, are like Mr. Spock from Star Trek, like, you know, suppressing your emotions, stiff upper lip. Like, it's like, as much as I love Spock, like, no, I don't think that's a particularly good life for a, for a human being. But then I stopped and I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. But Stoicism, too, is a type of virtue ethics. And in fact, the Stoics, so who, was, who were the Stoics? Oh, Marcus Aurelius. Well, I, I read the meditations when I was in college, and it's like, I liked it. I, I thought it was an interesting, you know, thought-provoking book. And, and, and also Seneca, right? Well, when I was in high school, I actually translated Seneca from Latin. And wow. he was a great writer. He's like, it, it was a lot of fun. So, but somehow I never put the, the two together. I never actually thought that Seneca and Marcus Aurelius were talking about the same stuff, let mm -hmm. alone that they were talking about a practical philosophy of life. So maybe, maybe actually I should take a look at, at Stoicism and see what happens. So I, I signed up for Stoic Week. I downloaded their material, started reading and practicing Stoicism. And the very first thing that I read is right at the beginning of Epictetus uh, discourses. And at the beginning of the discourses, Epictetus says, uh, uh, so, you know, at some point we have to die, but it looks like that's not going to happen today. 
On the other hand, I'm hungry, so let's go out and have lunch. It's like, what? Who, who is this guy? <laughs> well, this, this is somebody who has a sense of humor. He talks in a very straightforward way, you know, it, I, I, it, it, no nonsense kind of thing. And I never heard of him, even though I have a PhD in philosophy. How is that even possible? So I started looking a little bit more carefully. Turns out Epictetus actually was a household name throughout the centuries, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the Renaissance, and all the way into the 19th century. Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, um, George Washington, all of them had copies of, of the Enchiridion, which is the other book uh, by Epictetus. So it's not actually by Epictetus, it's by one of his students, but nevertheless about Epictetus' teachings. And uh, I thought, so that's interesting. So the, the Epictetus' names then eventually went into a kind of a little bit of a, an eclipse during the 20th century, um, but we're trying to bring him back. In fact, the latest book that I wrote, um, A Field Guide to a Happy Life, is really an homage to Epictetus because I think that people really need to know about Epictetus. He's, he's, a, he's a great guy. And I'm reading now, incidentally, before I finish the story, I'm reading now a novel by that came out in the 90s by Thomas Wolfe. It's mm -hmm. called um, Men in Full. Uh, and uh, one of the characters changes his life in prison because he discovers by chance, he discovers Epictetus and, and this starts is, reading it. This is strange. I, sorry, this is has not, probably adds no value, but it's really strange. I was watching somehow to the zeitgeist this happened, a YouTube clip of Thomas Wolfe being interviewed by Letterman about that book last night. There you go. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> He's trying to tell us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Stoic guys. So, long story short, uh, I got into Stoicism for a week, and then, and then I, uh, I said, this is really great. Uh, let, me, let me look into it more carefully. So I committed to practice for another couple of months. Usually Stoic week is in October. So a couple more months is at the end of the year. And then I said, this is really working well. Uh, for me, so let's commit for another year. And now here I am, you know, several years later, I'm talking to you. And it's working out well? It is working out well, uh, especially in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> as you might as yeah. you might imagine. Um, no, it's, it's been working well because, so my friends and family tell me that I get much less upset and angry about things than compared to what I used to. Uh, you know, certainly having become a sage, I do still get upset and angry occasionally, but much less so than, than it used to be. I have a much better, I think, a much better perspective on things. I can handle uh, problems and setbacks uh, more, more, uh, you know, appropriately. So, like, let me give you an example. During the pandemic, this was early on. It was like um, this, sometime in the spring. So, my wife and I live here in an apartment in in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn, and um, uh, all of a sudden, the refrigerator stopped working. Okay, well, we can replace the refrigerator, except that the building where we live doesn't, did not allow at the time delivery of appliances because it was in the middle of a, the peak of the pandemic in New York. It's like, yeah. nope, no delivery at all. It's like, oh, crap. So now we are facing a pandemic, a situation where you want to have food stored <laughs> without a refrigerator or a freezer. That's not good. Now, instead of, sort of panicking, getting upset and say, you know, started you know, yelling and all that sort of stuff, we both looked at each other and we said, so what would Epictetus do? <laughs> and of course, the first thing that Epictetus would do is would remind you that certain things are under your control and other things are not under your control. Right. Getting a refrigerator delivered, it's not under your control. Sorry, that's, out of, that's, not, that's not in the cards. What is under our control? Well, for one thing, 
we could, for, for, for some time at least, switch our diet to mostly dry and canned foods, right? So we can go out still to the grocery store, get a bunch of cans of stuff, you know, beans and stuff like that, um, pasta, rice, stuff like that. And we can certainly live okay for the foreseeable future. Second, what is under our control is to check with the uh, management company of the building and, and asking, okay, this is our problem. We know that we, you cannot, uh, you know, you don't allow delivery of, of, of appliances, but is there any, any other suggestion you have? And they said, well, we actually do allow delivery of small things like, you know, dorm-sized refrigerators. Oh, great. That's better than nothing. So we got one of those and that helped at least, you know, with fresh produce and things like that. And we were just fine for the several weeks that it took eventually for the pandemic to sort of subside a little bit, the, the building to reopen. And now we have a perfectly functioning new refrigerator. So under different con, you know, conditions, if we had not, both my wife and I practice stoicism, if, if, we, if we had not approached things in that way, we would have been pissed off and yelling and probably arguing with each other and being pissed at the, at the management company, at the universe that had uh, you know, sent us the pandemic. None of that happened. It saved a lot of energy and time, you know, and emotional distress and all that sort of stuff. We just said, okay, so let's see what, you know, what we can do given the situation. And, uh, and, it, and we did, and it worked. So, so there are countless examples of this kind of attitude that really changes things very practically, very, very, very uh, dramatically in some cases. It's interesting how beneficial it's been for you. And at the same time, when you were going through a period of stress, you seem to know at least what the kind of framework was that you needed in your life in order to make a lifestyle yeah. for yourself. Yes, but even there, that's right, that's, that's true. But even there, I knew it because I had just uh, recently been through a PhD program in philosophy where, of course, even though my specialty, as I said, is philosophy of science, and so I, I was focused mostly on uh, the, the kind of courses that are pertinent there, philosophy of science, logic, epistemology, you know, that sort of stuff. But I, it was a PhD program in philosophy, so you had to take other courses as well including mandated one course on ancient philosophy, Greek, Greek philosophy, and one course on ethics. So yes, you're right. So you're the framework was bit. there, but yeah, yeah. The, the, the framework was in itself the result of the fact that I was much more familiar with philosophy than I had been before. So, so in that scenario you just gave, I mean, you talked about an application of stoicism and how it's helped you. Um, and it sounds like you talk, what, what is it called? The dichotomy of control? Is that what, right. what that... Um, I've heard, uh, I've heard of this mentioned, like the, the tactic itself uh, has been applied in, uh, several different areas. Some call themselves Stoics, some don't. I'm curious if you know about the work of Ellen Langer. No. Um, she, a lady that worked, actually, she's the first female chair of psychology at Harvard. People call her the mother of mindfulness. And she okay. took, she had the same issue, took the same issue with Buddhism as you did. And she, of course, she took the same issue with maybe a westernized, commercialized mindfulness track as right. you, maybe you do. And so she tried to figure out what are the fundamentals of mindfulness? What does it mean? What are you after? And it came out to be, it cashed out to be something like stoicism. So I guess if you don't know, yeah. if you don't know her, then you wouldn't be able to answer. But I'm curious to know, is there something about mindfulness and stoicism that are fundamentally incompatible? Or are they sort of just cut from the same cloth and under a different name?
If you enjoy the social exchange and you currently don't contribute to the show, let me tell you two ways that you can make a contribution at no cost. For one, you can take a minute and 30 seconds to subscribe to the podcast and then rate us on your podcast app. Another thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel. We've just begun the YouTube channel in earnest and are currently putting up videos of our interviews on a regular basis. We'd love to build that channel up. At the same time, the show is supported solely by listener contributions. If you'd like to make a donation, then you can do so very easily at our page, patreon.com slash the social exchange. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the social exchange. For as little as $2, you'll be doing a lot to support our work, and you'll receive exclusive Patreon content, as well as early access to all regularly scheduled episodes. Again, to drop us a tip, visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. As is custom, I want to thank all of our current Patreon subscribers. Grazie mille to Stephen Rabinowitz, Jesse Dunleavy, Andrew Tatarski, Dean Lemire, Christy McPherson, Nuncio de Martino, who is a man who works at Don Nuncio Limos in Italy, Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris L., Leah Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Christopher Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, Anne Earl, Inigo, John, Layla, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean, Regina Ferguson, Tim Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, and my family members who kindly still support the show, Susan Matthew, Linda Rhodes, and Tom Rhodes. Thank you to all who have contributed to the podcast so far. And if you'd like to join this list, then just visit Patreon dot com slash the social exchange back to the show remind me in a minute to go back to mindfulness because okay. I think it is important yeah. but before we get there so the dichotomy of control that notion is actually found in a number of different philosophies i mm. found uh traces of it in 8th century buddhism uh 11th century judaism and there's the most famous probably connection is with 20th century christianity the serenity prayer uh, the famous, this is a prayer that is uh, usually invoked at the beginning of uh, meetings of 12-step organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous, right? And the prayer, I never remember the exact wording, but the prayer basically asks God to give you the wisdom to tell the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change, yeah. the courage to change what you can, and the serenity to accept what you cannot. Well, that's essentially Epictetus. And um, and I don't think it's by chance, because the Enchiridion, the, the manual uh, by Epictetus, was actually trans, uh, translated in Latin uh, several times. It was updated throughout the, 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 the uh, Middle Ages and the Renaissance. In fact, it was used as a training manual for Christian monks throughout the, the Middle Ages. So I don't think it's a chance that that kind of stuff just sort of reemerges. You're right that it's often you, uh, called the dichotomy of control. I believe, I'm not absolutely positive, but I believe that that term actually comes uh, from Bill Irvine one of the modern Stoics, uh, mm. you know, in, in Stoicism. However, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not really about control. Even though the, the beginning of the Enchiridion is, uh, sometimes is translated as saying uh, some things are under your control and other things are not under your control. Actually, the best translation that I've found is some things are up to us and other things are not up to us. Mm. Meaning... In, for some things, the buck stops stops with us, for, with me, and for others it doesn't. That doesn't mean I can, you know, control. It's a little bit of a strong word here, but basically, what Epictetus says: like, Look, at the end of the day, the only things that are really up to us are your judgments, and nothing else, really. 
Okay. Uh, your, your judgments means your decisions to act or not to act on certain things, uh, how you think about certain issues and your values, your endorsed values, you know, your explicitly endorsed values. Those are things that are clearly up to you, meaning nobody can tell you to change them. They can try to influence you. They can try to even force you to change them. But ultimately, you know, if I say, um, you know, I think racism is the best invention since, you know, best thing since sliced bread. That's my opinion. And you are right to hold me accountable to that opinion. I can't just say, well, but I heard it from somewhere else. Right. Or, you know, a friend of mine told me it was a good idea. You can reasonably say, yeah, but you are the one that is pushing, putting forth that notion right now. It's up to you. You are responsible for it. On the that other hand, every, pretty much everything else, according to Epictetus, is not up to us. Meaning, not that we cannot influence. For instance, my health, mm. we're in the middle of a pandemic. So let's talk about health. So what about my health is up to me and, or, or, and not up to me? Well, what is up to me is to wear a mask. Uh, that's an action, right? That, is, that derives from a judgment. I believe that wearing masks is a good idea. Uh, washing my hands. That's an action which derives from a judgment that washing your hands is a good thing. Uh, social distancing, that's an action that derives from a judgment, et cetera, et cetera. What is not up to me is whether I actually do get sick or not. Right? Mm. Because I could do all of those things. I could do everything right. And yet, I can tell you as a biologist, viruses are sneaky things. They can get you, you know, regardless of whether you do the right thing or, or not. Of course, the chances that I'm going to get the virus are much smaller if I do the right things, right? If I act appropriately, but there is no guarantee. So what Epictetus is telling you is that the outcomes of your actions are not a guarantee. In that sense, they're not up to you. That is that's That takes care of a potential limitation that I wanted to talk to you about. First of all, I should say that I was trying to look cool and know that that was called the dichotomy of control. And I thought maybe that was like a translation from a... From, from stoic literature but it was just bill urban that i had on last week yes, but uh right. <laughs> but so, so he might have just said it to me a week ago and that's so maybe i'm not so smart don't tip in my hand but something i had a problem with is because we were so limited on time was if it's i think you're right that it's a misnomer if it's called the dichotomy of control that that bothered me because making choices and then the outcome potential outcomes of the reasons the basis for you doing something uh, is not so dichotomous. I mean, you right. want to pine for something that maybe you can't achieve or something like that. And right. so th I think you just answered that pretty well. Like you, you a mentioned that you- term, yeah. A better term for it that sometimes is used, not very often, unfortunately, is the stoic fork. Mm -hmm. So the, the fork tells you, okay, so some things are up to me and other things are not up to me. Of course, as I said, there is a close relationship between the two. So, so for instance, one of the things that I actually disagree with Bill is that Bill introduces, after he, he talks about the dichotomy of control, he says, well, we should really talk about a trichotomy. There are things that are under our control, things that are not under our control, and then there are things that we can influence, right? But if you do that, you kind of destroy Epictetus. That's not, you know, that's kind of a, a little bit of a, in my mind at least, a trivialization of Epictetus. So of course, Epictetus knew that there are things that we can influence. Right. It was, you know, <laughs> obviously there are. Um, but the point is that what we call influence itself can be divided, broken down into these two components. Like I just said, I influence my health, right? Right. But that influence is the result of two things. On the one hand, what's up to me, my decisions about how to act during a pandemic, and what is not up to me, the, the damn virus and what other people do 
uh, about it, right? And the two things come together and it looks like something that I'm influencing. Yes, that's true. Now, why is all this important? Because the idea is therefore that we should focus on what is up to us and then develop an attitude of equanimity toward what is not up to us, right? So going back to my example of the refrigerator during a pandemic, right? My wife and I immediately focused on what was up to us. Okay, so what kind of alternative grocery shopping can we do that's going to ameliorate the problem? That's up to us. Um, we didn't, and then we took what is not up to us with equanimity. It's like, oh, okay, I guess we're not going to have a refrigerator for the next mm. few weeks. Fine. That's not the end of the world, right? Life will, will go on. Instead of getting upset, you sort of try to develop this attitude of acceptance and endurance of the things that you don't like. Right. So things things could get better. It's always in the realm of possibility, but they might not. And so I'm actually okay with to, right now. Correct. You need to be prepared. Now, going back to mindfulness. Yeah. So there is a debate within the Stoic community about the term mindfulness because, um, because some people do talk about Stoic mindfulness, but Stoic mindfulness is very different from Buddhist mindfulness uh, in the original Eastern tradition. And it's also very different from Westernized Buddhist mindfulness. So what Stoic mindfulness is, the term in Greek is prosoke, which actually translates as attention. It basically, the Stoics are telling you to pay attention to what you're doing right here, right now. Mm. Why would you want to do that? Well, Epictetus says, because nothing has ever been improved by not paying attention to it. <laughs> and because since your life is happening right here, right now, right? It's not happening in the past because the past is outside of, it's not up to you. It's, it's done, right? It's not happening in the future because also the future is not up to you. It's, it still has to come. It is happening right here, right now. So the best thing you can do in order to have a good life is to pay attention, be mindful of what you're doing. You should do nothing unless you're actually paying attention to it, right? And so in that sense, yes, stoic mindfulness, I think it's a good idea. It's a great idea. Um, and, you know, I, so I try to practice it on a regular basis. And it's not as easy as it sounds because, you know, it sounds trivial. It's like, of course, are you paying attention? Really? Because I see a lot of my students who try to multitask, for instance, yeah. between listening to my lecture, checking their cell phone, you know, checking Facebook and all that. We all do that sort of stuff. We live in a society, especially now in the 21st century, where the notion of multitasking has become ingrained, even though... It's not just the Stoics, it's modern neuroscience that tells you that the human brain literally cannot do multitasking. Right. We, we just cannot. Or what we do is we switch very quickly between different tasks with the result that we're not paying proper attention to either one of them. And so mm -hmm. we're doing both worse, right? So if I were having a conversation with you uh, right now, but then on the side, I was kind of look at my phone to see if there's a message. To me. Oh, maybe there's a message from my brother. Oh, okay, I'm not answering it, but I'm reading it. Well, now I'm losing the, the thread of the conversation with you and I'm paying half attention to what my brother wrote. So no, I'm going to finish my conversation with you first and yes. then I'm going to go to my brother's message and pay full attention to that one. I had a conversation with Christopher Chabri who did the, uh, the Invisible Gorilla mm -hmm. video. Yes, you know that's right. Yes, and he, prop he properly convinced me that I'm, I'm never paying this as much of attention as I think. Um, yeah. But it, it sounds when you say attention, it sounds like it has a certain meaning that maybe not everybody agrees with. I mean, it seems right. like it's sort of a soft attention and also like a salience determination 
that you, yeah. that you need to have about you. Uh, whereas you could be, it's not paying attention to lots of things nope, because you can't right. do that. And it's not, you could also, I'm sure, overly concentrate on something to the extent right. that it's bucking you down. Is there a better way to talk about attention? Yeah, in fact, Epictetus actually tells you what it means specifically by the word prosoke. There is a section in the discourses which is entirely entitled on what we should pay attention to. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a, he actually says it pretty explicitly. As I said, one of the things that I like about Epictetus is that he's pretty straightforward. If, if you have a question, it's like, okay, there must be a section here in the discourses where he talks about yeah. this. And sure enough, there is. So here's what it is. Um, he says we should pay attention particularly to what he calls our impressions. Now, impression is a technical stoic term, and it basically corresponds to your implicit judgments whenever you perceive something. So, for instance, let's say, uh, you know, I walk down the street and I see, a, you know, a, a very attractive uh, person of the appropriate gender, in my case, a woman, and my immediate thought is, oh, that'll be, it'll be fun to have sex with her. That's your impression, Okay. So your impression is a combination of a sensorial experience. I'm seeing somebody walking down the street who has certain characteristics and an implicit judgment. Oh, it would be because if you say to yourself, it would be good to have sex, then that's an implicit, ju that's a right. judgment, right? And it's implicit because we normally don't take it, don't bring it out, uh, you know, and examine it. And Peter says, okay, that's where you want to stop and pay attention. You want to actually talk to your impression and, and say, he says, you should say to your impression, you are just an impression, not necessarily the thing you pretend to be, mm. right? And so now you, come, you start this inner dialogue, basically, between you and your impression. And the dialogue might go something like that. Yeah, sure, that person is certainly of the right gender and is certainly attractive. And yes, other things being equal, I'm sure that having sex with her might be uh, you know, a, a pleasurable thing. However... You're also in a committed relationship with a woman you love, and you also think that trust trust is an important thing, and therefore you obviously don't want to, you know, betray her trust in you. So, the impression needs to be rejected. The Stoics say you should deny assent to the impression. Right. Got it. And that is a lot of what's going on in Stoicism, especially in Epictetus' version of Stoicism. It's all about a lot of it is about denying or affirming assent to certain things. You don't always deny. There are some, like, for instance, when you um, contacted me or, you know, at some point and said, you know, I would like to have you on my podcast. Uh, okay, my first impression might have been, oh, damn, you know, another interview or, oh, great, <laughs> another way to talk for an hour about the things that I like, right? But then I stopped and I said, yeah, okay, hold on a second or whatever. This is an interesting opportunity. The guy seems like, you know, is, is uh, genuinely interested. Uh, now, do I have the time to do that? Can I fit it in my schedule? Is it going to be, you know, useful to people in general? After you do all that, then you assent and you say, sure, I'll, I'll do the. I'll do I got it. it. So you're, you're really taking a closer inspection of your first impression Correct. there. Correct. I know you're talking about Epictetus there, but I, it's, it must be shared among the Stoics. I, yeah. I'm not, I haven't read deeply a lot of the Stoic literature, but I have read Meditations, which I, maybe everyone who's graduated a liberal arts college has read or something. Right. But I remember, I just remember laughing, thinking, because I was, it was in the morning and I was reading this section of uh, Meditations where Marcus Aurelius is having a dialogue with himself about mm -hmm. whether to get out of bed. Right. So, but, you know, That's you need right. to, what use are you doing in here? And then yep. talking back to himself, uh, 
you know, but it feels so nice, you know, it's so, so warm and nice. And, and I, I was having that same dialogue with myself. And like you said, there's something about the Stoics that is so commonsensical and deceptively challenging to master yes. um, at the same time. That's uh, right. So the theory is fairly simple. I mean, it right. doesn't, it's really not rocket science and it shouldn't be. Any good theory I, I feel yeah. should be. Yeah, exactly. Any good, certainly any good philosophy of life yeah. should not be rocket science because otherwise it's not accessible to the, to the majority of people. And that's not, that's not the point. However, one thing is a theory and another one is a practice. I mean, Epictetus actually mm. says pretty clearly to his students at some point, he says, you know, when you are in my classroom, I, think I see a bunch of Stoics. But then you go, I meet you in the streets and I see a bunch of Aristotelians. <laughs> in other words, you're not practicing what you actually, what you allegedly understood. Right. Because the practice, uh, right. right? The practice is, 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 is difficult it, and it's, it requires constant attention again um, and, and, and dedication. So sometimes people say, so, but isn't that asking a little too much? Isn't, isn't practicing stoicism, you know, difficult and demanding? And my answer is, yes, it is. But what makes you think that practicing Buddhism or Christianity is not difficult? Mm. I mean, if you want to be a real Christian, a serious Christian, not somebody who just goes through the motions, right. that's demanding. I mean, you know, uh, love your neighbor, your, your enemy, that's pretty demanding. That's, that's, yeah. not a, that's not a minor thing. Or in the case of a Buddhist, you know, uh, make sure that you don't do anything that increases suffering in the world. Huh. That's a easier said than, than done. So it's not a surprise that it requires constant application and constant. But, you know, the goal is to become a better human being. And according to the Stoics, but also, I think, to the, to the Christians and to the Buddhists, there is no higher goal you could possibly have. It makes sense to me. I mean, it's the more you practice, no matter the rigor, yeah. it, it's enlivening. And at the same time, there's a, there's a built-in mechanism that allows you to look back on what you've done right even if you failed the practice but you don't take the perspective of failure you see something like how can i improve on this right uh, I, I think yeah the story, you know the uh, especially Epictetus use a lot you, the the um analogy with athletics so he says oh so you want to you want to be at the olympics you want to yeah. want to win the laurel at the olympics well who wouldn't <laughs> right but are you prepared I mean, do you do you really know what that means? You know, are you prepared to you know exercise every day, to sweat a lot, to eat certain foods, not to do certain things, to th be thrown down in the dust, and then maybe you're not even going to win. You know, you're going to going to play second or third. So it's like, yeah, it requires uh, uh, you know effort, but that's true for anything. I mean, again, using the analogy of athletics. So if you decide to go to the gym and start working out, right? Presumably, one of the first, if you know nothing about working out, one of the first things you do is you go to the gym, you sign up with an instructor or, you know, with a trainer, and so that you have an idea of what you're doing. So you don't hurt yourself so that you uh, can come up with a you know, program of exercise that works for you, all that. That's the theory. But then you don't just walk out and say, oh, well, thank you. That's it. Done. Right? No. Okay. That, that was the beginning. Now right. you have to actually go back every day and do it. Right? right? You don't right. just do, you don't just learn about how to lift weights. You actually have to lift the damn things, right? Over and over and over. Otherwise, you don't get the muscles that you want. You just, you just get the theory. Right. It's a way of life. And actually, this is, that's a nice segue into one of the reasons I'm so interested in it and then in your work is because I coach and counsel people all the time about how to overcome addictions. 
and I have, uh, I guess, I guess what my take on it is very much a cognitive behavioral one. Um, and so it, it does oppose a lot of calling it addiction to disease. So I say that, you know, there's an element of agency and personal responsibility you can take gladly, um, to overcome things. And I, I remember thinking I had a heavy workload and I lose, I lost my temper a lot. And at the same time, I have a young child. And I remember that that all, that doesn't sound that stressful, but I remember all of that coming to a head and thinking, I'm really, I'm getting way too far, you know, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, there's way too much happening and I'm being a horrible role model for my kid. If I'm yep. losing my keys right. in the morning and flipping out and she's seeing that. Right. So I started doing, it. I didn't mean for it to be a stoic practice or anything like that, but I, I would wake up at about 4.30 in the morning to get my work done for the day between 4.30 and when I went to my next job. Um, and at the same time, I started, do, this was just total common sense on my part. I asked myself, what would I tell a client of mine to do? And I thought, well, one thing I might do is think about the things that I have, like my daughter, and, and, and think about what life would be if she were gone. And when I told a colleague about that, he said, oh, so you're getting really stoic. That's, that's, ah. the first, that's my first introduction to stoicism. All, all that does ask, what do you see as the proper relationship between stoicism and cognitive therapies? Or what, what is the relationship and how are they similar? That's a good question. So as you probably know, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, was actually, at least some strands of it, were actually inspired by stoicism. Uh, uh, you know, Beck and um, Albert Ellis actually directly mentioned the stoics. Uh, yeah. And um, so it's not surprising that there is a connection there. Of course, then, then, then cognitive behavioral therapy evolved into its own field. It's, it's research-based, evidence-based, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, now there is... A, uh, a number of different schools of it, different waves of it. It's it you know it gets its own its own thing. Um, however, there is a fundamental con uh, connection there, which is Stoic psychology, which of course was intuitive psychology, right? I mean, at the time they didn't do ex uh, you know experiments or you know controlled uh, uh, conditions or anything like that. So it was all intuitive. Uh, but it is essentially this, this, the picture we get from Stoic psychology is very similar to what we get from cognitive science today, which is that what we call emotions <clears throat> are at least the complex, mature emotions are in part cognitive, okay? That is, there is a cognitive component to it. And therefore, you can argue with your own emotions. You can, you can actually right. think through, through it and you can say, wait a minute, hold on a second. You can, you can say to the impression, you know, wait, you're not, you're not what you look, look like. Now, the Stoics did realize as modern cognitive sciences also agree, that certain emotional responses are automatic and there is nothing you can do about it. Seneca, for instance, in On Anger, uh, writes that the first movement, what he calls the first movement of anger is in uncontrollable. You, you, just nothing you can do. You know, it's that, that sort of internal sensation of, I'm getting really upset here. There's something really is not going on, right? He says, don't even think about trying to suppress that or control that because it's just like, it's just like blushing. You don't have any control over it. However, anger then quickly develops into a partly cognitive emotion and say, oh yeah, I should be upset about this thing because that guy is a jerk and he, you know, he treated me that way. It's a, there is where you can act. There is where you can say, hold on a second. What's, what's going on here? Mm. I'm getting upset and war worked out because what? Somebody cut me off on the highway. That's their problem, not mine. Right? Uh, nothing happened. There's no, there was no accident, nothing. So 
what, why am I worried about this kind of thing? And so you, you, you come to terms with your emotional responses that way. That is why, by the way, it's, it's really not accurate at all to say the Stoics try to suppress emotions. We don't suppress our emotions because, as you know, again, that's not possible. It would be like a, you know, it's just not going to happen. What we try to do is to manage our emotions by way of engaging the cognitive component. And, and, and trying to move through practice, trying to move away from what Stoics consider unhealthy emotions, such as anger, fear, things like that. And also, however, toward a mindful uh, uh, cultivation of what we consider healthy emotions, love, joy, you know, sense of justice, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's, that's the way it works. And now, going back to your question about CBT, so one way to think about it is that of course CBT is a therapy, uh, and therefore it's typically. Uh, I mean, you you tell me since you're the one that actually do it. But typically, from what I understand, it is tailored to, to specific problems, right? And and it's supposed to be a short-term kind of thing. This it's, it's not a Woody Allen style, style therapy that you're supposed to do for 50 years. Uh, you the know, therapy itself, yeah, yeah. Right, the therapy itself. It's like it's it's targeted. So. Yep. You have a problem, you know, it's, you have a phobia, you have a depression, you have a whatever it is. You go to the therapist, the therapist works, helps you work your, your way through this thing. And after a number of sessions, that could be, you know, weeks or months, but not decades, uh, you're right. supposed to reassess the situation, see, see, see if you actually have improved. Um, that's the difference with stoicism. Stoicism is not a therapy, it's a philosophy of life. So it's for life. It's, right. it's lifelong. Stoicism right? is the, the ultimate toolkit. Right. And, and it doesn't, uh, 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 so this is not focused on specific issues. It's, it's, it's useful for anything that might happen to you. Right. So there are situations where you might still want to go to a therapist as a stoic and say, look, I can't get out of this. You know, I'm, I'm going through a phase of depression, for instance. Or, of course, also if you have diagnosable uh, conditions such as bipolarism or something like that, then you have to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist even. But I have a friend, a colleague, Lou Marinoff, who actually um, uh, wrote this really pretty funny book called Plato, Not Prozac, <laughs> where he, yeah, he pushes sort of uh, uh, philosophical uh, counseling. It's not really therapy. It's a philosophical counseling. But at the beginning, despite the title of the book, at the beginning, uh, Lou says, look, sometimes you need Prozac or whatever chemical, right? Because if your mind is in a situation, a state that it cannot work. You cannot work through your processes. You, you, cannot, you cannot process your cognitive uh, you know, uh, aspect. Then, then you need the pill. You, you need to, or whatever it is that's going to helpful and bring you down to a normal, more or less normal function. But once you're there, you're still going to have the problems of how do I do with my relationships? Yes, uh, yes. What would I want to do in life? The, all yeah. of those things are still going to be there and the pill isn't going to tell you. Right. Good, good so, point. You were talking about suppressing of emotions, um, which is something that I figured you probably are asked so often. Since it was the first question that I thought of, I knew that it's something you probably get asked really often. Right. But uh, just to tell me if I'm reflecting in somewhat of a lay terms, maybe, but still correctly, it's not suppressing emotions. It's not even really suppressing negative emotions except to the extent that you don't want to fan the flames of negative emotions. Right. You know, you're going to have natural evolutionarily predisposed reactions to things. Right. But what you're trying to do is make room for as many positive emotions 
as you can by not letting the negative ones bog you down or, or go on for any longer than they need to. That's correct. And also, I think part of the, the, approach, the stoic approach to the negative emotion, to the unhealthy emotions, is you're trying to, dis, to disperse them, to dis, so, so, uh, mm. to, to make them milder, to just make them, you wait until they go away. Right. And then you argue with yourself and say, look, you really should prepare yourself for this kind of thing. So, for instance, uh, Seneca, again, says, you know, in anger, don't engage cognitively with anger while you're angry because that's not going to work right it's like that's like saying you know if you're a friend who is getting angry and you say don't get upset he's mm. going to get more upset it's right. like that's not that's just not going to work so what do you do with your friend well you distract him you bring him out for a while and say okay let's go out for a walk let's get a drink let's let's do something else that is going to calm you down once you calm down in other words once the the anger has actually subsided on its own because there's not much you can do about it uh otherwise then you start okay now let's talk about this thing why exactly were you getting upset you know was was it really that important etc right because now you're calm and so now you can reason about about things that's the stoic approach no i feel, so what i'm dealing with i work with kids uh in addition to working with adults with addictions and one of my one of my best strengths is being able to de-escalate a kid who's just really off, right. the, off the wall. And what I'll do, of course, is listen actively to the child. So I'm actually reflecting deeply what they're telling me the problem is. So uh, distracting might be a method that I use, but it's more like I'm making sure that they feel a sense of control and that, I under and that somebody else understands the emotion that they're feeling. And in that sense, then we could start kind of like you're saying, then we can start talking about the real issue at hand once things are calmed down. Exactly. Is there is there an element of that? I feel like there is, but I maybe can't articulate it. Is there an element of that in stoicism, except this is an internal dialogue? Right. So the, the notion is, yeah, the approach is similar, but it is an internal dialogue. And and in fact, one of the things that the Stoics suggest to do, especially in modern, in modern Stoicism, is because you want to practice internal dialogue, uh, you should do it in ways that are efficacious. And one way it is efficacious is to write things down, right? So journaling becomes an mm -hmm. important thing, right? Because if you just argue with yourself in your mind, it's pretty easy to fool yourself. It's pretty easy to rationalize things. But once you start writing them down in you mm -hmm. know, black and white, it's like, wait a minute, what the, what the hell am I writing here? Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Uh, number one. Number two, the advice is to do it in, to do the journaling in second person, right? As if you were actually writing to a friend. Why? Because the idea is that if you journal, a lot of people journal in the first person and they get all caught up again in the emotional responses, right? They relive their emotional responses. That's not a good thing as far as the Stoics are concerned. What you want to do is to actually take some distance. And one way to take some distance from your emotional responses is to write to yourself in the second person. So when I write mm -hmm. in my diary, I say, oh, so you got upset about this today. What the hell was going on with you? What, <laughs> what were you thinking? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh. The notion there being that, in a sense, you're kind of talking to a child, right? The yes. child being yourself upset. When you were upset, when, when even an adult human being, when they're when we are upset, we actually behave like a child. We want attention. You know, we want thing, things that probably yes. we can't get, <laughs> yes. right? Uh, that's why you get upset. That's why you get angry. So you talk to yourself as if you're actually talking to a child, in a sense. And you say you de-escalate, and then you say, okay, but really. So you're having What's, this Socratic dialogue on, on right. your own. Yeah, that's right. great. Um, our time's limited, but I did want to get to this one 
one thing that I was really interested in, I think I heard you talking about it on an interview. Um, might not be getting this totally right, but if I am, then it has implications for something I'm interested in, which is restorative justice. Um, yes. And I think it's to paraphrase you, you were saying something like um, the Stoics believe that people, people aren't wrongdoers, you know, knowingly, you know, it's usually right. out of, out of ignorance or out of the lack of wisdom yeah. that, that, that they right. behave badly. And I'm that interested comes in out, that comes out of a, of a Socratic uh, phrase. So Socrates at one point says that the only, the root of all evil is ignorance. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the Stoics considered themselves Socratics. So they actually took that and run with, with it. Now, the first thing to clarify is by ignorance, Socrates didn't mean if you don't go to college, you're evil or, any, or something like that. Or if you don't, you know, it wasn't talking about factual knowledge. He was talking about wisdom. In fact, the word that he uses, amatia in Greek, it translates as unwisdom. So what he's saying really is that the, the, the root of evil of all evil is lack of wisdom, okay? Is that people do things that are not wise. So the stoic perspective on that is that when somebody does something wrong, they don't do it on purpose because if you talk to them, they would actually explain to you reasons for why they're doing that. They think that they're doing the right thing, okay? So the jerk that cuts you off the highway, for instance, right, and you get upset, if you talk to, to, to him, he will probably say, hey, I'm in a hurry and, you know, I have an appointment or, mm. or you know, my, my wife is delivering my baby in the hospital or even something as lame as, hey, I'm not a schmuck like you. I can just cross people, other people and, you know, get ahead, right? Even then, it's, he still thinks and has reasons for right. it. He thinks that from his perspective, those are good reasons, right? So the Stoics basically use that for anything any anybody who does something bad or quote-unquote evil they're actually not doing it on purpose now if that's the case that means you have two options you either teach them or endure them as marcus Aurelius says right so the first thing of course if somebody's trying is doing something that actually is affecting is you know harming other people then the first thing the stoics should do is to actually stop it so redact you out absurdum being like a serial killer or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to say, oh, well, he's doing what he thinks is right. So right. whatever, right? right? No, you're not doing whatever. You're obviously going to stop him if you can. But after that, you don't start, you don't say on top of that, you don't say, oh, and that was an evil thing to do. No, he was doing whatever his nature brought him to do. Hmm. And so he should be actually be treated as a sick person. Epictetus directly makes the analogy with a blind person. He says, you know, you, you call these people murderer and thief, thieves and stuff like that. But what do you mean exactly? You mean that they're doing something that they think is right, but you think is actually not right. So in a sense, they're like a blind person who walks down the street and start bumping into other people and hurting other people. Right? Well, would you put the blind person to death? Because, of, because he's blind. No, you, you try to help him. You try to say, right. hey, you're hurting other people. Don't do it. And, and then you, if possible, you're trying to cure his blindness. If not, you're going to try to put him in a situation where he's not going to be hurting himself or other people. So in that sense, the Stoics are very much into restorative just, justice and certainly not into punishment. Right? You don't punish people. You don't re exact revenge on people because anybody 
could be in their position. You could have been in the same position. Right. Under similar circumstances, you might have done the same thing that they are doing. Uh, and therefore, you should be charitable and, and, and be constructive about things. Again, this does not mean at all that you should be a doormat and have other people walk all over you or, 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 or let them hurt people. No, that's not what it is about. It's about not add, adding this hatred right. to the person, not, try, not adding the, the, the punishment, the revenge thing that, that's going on so much, unfortunately, especially in American society. See, as, as, from a stoic perspective, that would be just a, a, the potential for irrationality then. Because yes. if you're if you're okay, you're locking a person up because they committed crimes, like you would lock a an earthquake up if you could. Yeah. So it wouldn't hurt exactly. anybody else. But exactly. saying, well, let's torture him too, because what an asshole. You're not exactly. right. You're you're it's it's always the potential you're getting something wrong there. And, and you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. You're doing Very the wrong thing. Yeah. You're reacting in the in the in the in the wrong way. You you are you're not helping the, the actual situation. So yeah. I appreciate everything that you've given uh, me and my listeners here today, and I appreciate oh, your time. Uh, there's a ton more I could talk to you about. I wonder <laughs> if just two more quick things. One, would you please talk about your, is it a forthcoming book or is the book already been published? Just came out a few weeks ago. It's called uh, A Field Guide to a Happy Life, uh, published by Basic Books. And basically what it is, is on the one hand, an homage to Epictetus, because it's about, it's about the Enchiridion. It's about Epictetus' manual. Uh, but on the same, and that's as I said before, that's because I think Epictetus needs to be better known uh, today. I think that people will benefit from from learning about Epictetus. But at the same time, it's also my personal attempt to update Stoicism to the 21st century, mm. because of course Stoicism, you know, started out 2,300 years ago, and a lot of stuff has happened in 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 the meantime. And just like in the same way in which nobody's a Buddhist today, in the way. People were Buddhist two thousand years ago, or a Christian, right. and so on and so forth. Then Stoics, you know, modern Stoics also need to update a few things. So basically, the field guide is a rewriting, a, a section by section rewriting of the Enchiridion, where uh, it's not a new translation because there's very very good translations out there already. It's a rewriting, meaning that I use the same concepts, similar similar concepts, and same similar situations, but I update I update it. To the 21st century so i let go of certain things that i don't think work very well anymore in stoicism and i replace them in what i hope is a coherent sort of fashion well i hope people will buy the book i'm going to as soon as we log off actually uh, so thank you <laughs> thank and you. i wanted to anything else you'd like to link to in addition to your patreon page because i shouldn't tell you this but i'm glad it works for you but just after a month you know for a three dollar subscription to your patreon i've gotten more value than my last two years of New York Times subscription, so <laughs> I'm I'm glad to hear that. I you know I that that page is there because I have a compulsion to write. I mean I just can't stop myself. So I write like two or, as you've seen two or three essays per week. That's great. But just before we started this conversation, I was finishing the one for tomorrow morning, and <laughs> uh, and I figured you know people might might actually find them interesting. So other than my Patreon page. Uh, you can find anything, pretty much everything about what I write, my podcasts, my interviews, whatever, at massimopilucci.com. It's a sort of one site that has everything that you can possibly okay. want to know. And the, the most recent podcast, I'm so sorry that I don't know about this. I'm a, 
What it's is called the modern, it's called uh, uh, Stoic Meditations, oh, okay. and it's available on thirteen different platforms. Oh my gosh, uh, Spotify. And what it is, it's essentially a daily podcast. It's uh, almost five times a week. I don't do it during the weekend. Uh, it's a very short thing. Every episode, it's like four or five minutes. It's very short, and it is literally a meditation. It is what I do every morning. I get up in the morning and I open a random passage from one of the stoics i read it and then i meditate i think about it, i reflect about what it means in terms in general terms and also in terms of my life once i started doing that i figured you know some people might actually find this useful that's outstanding and, yeah so so right now there are i think at the last count there are 750 episodes out uh and you know for a total of something like five and a half million downloads so apparently people do find it useful it must be so yeah thank you so much well thanks again for everything you've given us today and i'll my pleasure I'll let you know when the show's out and link to all those things in the show notes great thank you